My neighbour Hank is an Uber driver. So I often ask Hank to drive me to and from the airport. So just last year I come back and I start texting Hank, okay, my plane has landed. And he texts back, okay, text me when you get out of the airport. So I text him, okay, I'm out of the airport. He texts back, okay, I will be there soon. Then I go, hey, where are you? He goes, well, where are you? I go, LOL, did you go to domestic? I'm at international. He texts back, no, I'm at international. Where are you? I said, I'm at the express pickup. He goes, yeah, I'm at the express pickup. I text back, well, I'm curbside. He texts, well, I'm curbside. Well, where are you? And he texts back, well, where are you? And then I say, oh, I see you. He goes, oh, yeah, I see you too. Okay, we'll be there soon. And then as I jump in the car, I said to him, Hank, we could have just called each other. Why don't we just text each other back and forth for 20 minutes? And you know why, because these days we just don't know how to talk to each other anymore. But that's okay because God talks to us. He sends us his son, Jesus, and this weekend we're looking at stories in the Bible where Jesus meets someone, talks to that person, and we're asking the question, what is Jesus saying to this person and what is Jesus saying to me today? And our final question this weekend is, what would Jesus say to the one stuck in the middle? What would Jesus say to the one climbing the corporate ladder? What would Jesus say to the middle manager? Because we've just heard a story where Jesus speaks with a centurion. Now, when we think centurion, this is what we think, a big, tough officer, a soldier in the Roman army. And that's why we get this stock photo of the internet, because that's what we think a centurion looks like. But I think these days a centurion would look like this, a middle manager. Because I did some research. Apparently centurion is someone who worked their way up through um, the enlisted soldiers and now they command 100 soldiers and this is as high as they will ever get. They're never going to get higher. They're never going to be part of the officers, the elite. This is as high as they're going to get. They are stuck in middle management. And we heard in the Bible reading where he gets to give orders, yes, but he's also always being told what to do. Now, when I was a med student, the nurses always told me what to do. But then when I was a junior doctor, I could tell the nurses what to do, but then the senior doctors were telling me what to do. When I became a senior doctor, I got to tell the junior doctors what to do, but the consultants were telling me what to do. I was always being told what to do. So we study hard in our 20s. In our 30s, we jump the corporate hoops. But then suddenly in our 40s, we plateau and we suddenly realise this is as high as I'm going to get. This is what I'm going to do for the next 20, 40 years of my working life. Always being told what to do. So what would Jesus say to this centurion and what would Jesus say to us today? Lord, my servant lies at home, paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, well, shall I come and heal him? But the centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
well, this is a part of the Bible I just don't get. What is going on here? Now, social etiquette has changed so much over the years. You know, once upon a time, if a guy came up to you, you knew what to do. You shake his hand. That's what you do. But now, it's all changed. It's morphed. I don't know what to do. Does he want the fist bump? Because I don't know how to do that. Is it meant to be the high five thing? Because I don't know how to do that. Or is, is he wanting the bro hug where you got to shake hands, do this, shoulder bump, pat each other on the back, finger snap on the way out? Oh, I don't know. It's even worse if it's a woman. Because now when a woman comes up to you, I don't know what to do. You go to shake her hand. No, I think she wants the hug. Okay, she wants the hug. Is it just a hug or is it the hug with a kiss? If it's a hug with a kiss, is it the pum pum air kiss on either side or is it the glancing kiss where my lips are meant to touch just only ever so slightly on the side? So I don't know what to do. So when a woman comes to me, I just say, back away. I do, do not come near me. And I'm not coming near you. Like, stay away. It's only martial arts, they teach you that fence. Keep that fence. Let's keep you away. (laughs) But that's what the centurion has done to Jesus. Back away. Jesus said, would you like me to come to your house? Whoa, no, stay away. And yet Jesus is amazed and he causes faith. What is going on? Well, let's see the three things Jesus is saying to this guy and to us today. Number one. Don't put your trust in traditional sources of power. Don't put your trust in traditional sources of power. Because Jesus says this, verse 11, many will come from the east and the west, foreign places, far away places. Many will come from the east and the west and they will take their places at the feast inside with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Those who are outside will now be on the inside but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth those who are outside will now be inside and those who are inside are now going to be outside and this fits with what jesus often says in other parts of the bible where he says the first will be last and the last will be first now when i was living in america my toe got infected and i thought oh I need some antibiotics. But if I was in Australia, that would be really easy. Hey, I'm a doctor, I'm qualified, I've got to write my own prescriptions or I could just, and I can get my own antibiotics or I could just see one of my doctor buddy friends and they can write me a prescription. Easy. But I was in America where my qualifications and my certificate counted for nothing. My university degree was worth as much as toilet paper in the USA. So I had to see someone else with other qualifications. And Jesus says, don't put your trust in traditional sources of power. What used to have currency, what used to count, doesn't count anymore. Don't put your trust in tradition. Don't put your trust in religion. Don't put your trust in your family. Don't put your trust in your networks. Don't put your trust in your relationships because they are worth as much as toilet paper in this kingdom of God. As Jesus says, what is first will now be last and what is last will be first. So what Jesus is saying, it's like this. It's like the hospital surgeon is now the cleaner and the cleaner is now the hospital surgeon. The judge is now the criminal and the criminal is now the judge. 
the university professor is now the student and the student is now the university professor. And that's why this centurion now finds himself on the inside. He was once on the outside, a foreigner, a working class, blue collar, not a people of God. Now on the inside, as part of the elite, a people of God feasting at the kingdom of God. Now, as Aussies, oh, we love this. We love this about Jesus because he's so deconstructionless, isn't he? Because we love, as Aussies, as Aussies, we love being anti-authority. Stick it to the man. You tell him, Jesus. We love this part because as Aussies, we love to go against authority. If the sign says, don't walk, <laughs> and there are no cars, buddy, I'm walking. I don't care what that sign says. When we go to a cafeteria, oh, there's a food fight. How good is a food fight? We're anti-authority. But at the same time, the Asian in me, I sort of like my authority. You know, I, I don't want no authority. I still want some authority. If I go to the hospital, I don't want the cleaner doing my gallbladder operation. I think I still want the surgeon doing my operation. When I go to a court of law... I don't think I want the criminal as my judge. I still want the judge as my judge. When I go to university, I want to hear from the university professor. I don't want to hear from the student next to me. That's why I hate group work. Hey, I paid all this money to hear from the professor. Why are you making me talk to the person next to me? They're dumber than I am. You're just pulling my ignorance. Now I'm wasting my money. No, I want to hear from the professor. I still want some authority in my life. And it's okay, pedestrians disobey a red light but I want cars to stop at red lights and every now and then when I go to a cafeteria I actually want to eat I don't just want a food fight so I still want some authority in my life so number two trust in Jesus as your new source of authority and power yes reject traditional forms of authority and power but replace that with Jesus as our new source of authority and power. Verse 8, the centurion centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my my servant will be healed. The centurion trusts in Jesus to be his power, his authority, and Jesus shows that power and authority with a word. This is my wife, Stephanie. We've been married 22 years. And as a married man, every now and then this will happen. I'm just about to walk out the door. My wife, Stephanie, will say to me, is that what you're wearing? Now, you single guys out there, that sounds like a question, doesn't it? A question at face value. Yes, this is what I'm wearing. But you married guys know, no, no. That is not a question. That is a command disguised as a question. (laughs) It's saying, I don't like what you're wearing. Wear something else. Get changed. And I will. I will get changed. Why? Because as my wife, she has authority over me. I get changed. You have no authority over me. So if you tell me to get changed, I'll say, get lost. But when my wife says get changed, I'll get changed. Well, now you're wondering, where does this authority come from? It comes from at least three levels. Level number one, we are married. We have a relationship. 
We have a covenant relationship. We have made promises. We have made vows. We have signed pieces of paper. So my life is not my own. I have responsibilities and obligations to her. That's where the authority comes from. Level number two. She has wisdom. That's where the authority comes from. She knows fashion better than I do, so I trust her judgment over mine. Level number three, her authority comes from her love for me. She loves me and she wants what's best for me, so again I trust her judgment over mine. Where does God's authority over us come from? He loves us, he made the world, he saved us, so where does his authority come from? Well, it comes from at least three levels. Level number one, we have a covenant relationship with this God. He is our God where his people promises have been made. Our life is not our own. We have responsibilities and obligations to this God who loved us, who made us and who saved us. Level number two, God has wisdom. He knows this world better than we do so we trust his judgment over ours. Level number three, God loves us and he wants what's best for us and he wants what's best for us so much he sent us his son Jesus. Jesus died for us to give us this new life. That's how much God loves us so he has authority over us and we trust his judgment over ours. That's what makes a loving relationship a loving relationship. Every now and then somebody who loves you is going to say things you don't understand and you don't agree with, but that's because they love you and God has his authority over us. But where does this authority come from? Well, one main way is by his word. See, where does my wife's authority come, over, uh, come from? How does she get me to get changed? Does she throw a brick at me, boom, get changed? No, she does it with a word get changed. And with a word, I get changed. Where does God's authority come from? Well, one powerful way is by his word. So the Bible says, in the beginning there was nothing, and then God spoke, and with a word he creates a universe. He brings something out of nothing. There's a story in the Bible where Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, is dead. God raises Lazarus back to life. How? With a word. Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes back to life. And when this centurion says to Jesus, just say the word, he's saying, Jesus, I think I recognize who you are. You are the son of God. You're the God who loved us, who made us, who saved us. With a word, you said, let there be. And there was light. With a word, you said, Lazarus, get up. And he came back to life. And with a word, I know you can heal my servant. That's why Jesus, wow, I'm amazed at your faith because you have recognised who Jesus is. So what does that mean for us today? Number three, Jesus gives us the meaning, purpose and identity that we're looking for. What do I mean by that? Verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, go. Let it be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed at that moment. The centurion puts his trust in Jesus and his word and he goes home and his servant is healed at that moment. 
But what does that mean for us today? Does that mean if we trust in Jesus and his word, we will find healing in all forms of life? Does that mean if we pray to Jesus, then he'll cure us of asthma, diabetes, depression? Does it mean if we pray to Jesus, he might bring our separated parents back together? If we pray to Jesus, he'll help us pass our exams and get our qualifications. They're good things to pray for. And I hope God answers those prayers with a yes answer. But the Bible says there is no guarantee we get the yes answer because the Bible also gives us many counter examples where God's people prayed to God for healing, but God in his wisdom didn't give them healing. So we know that in each and every circumstance, God will answer prayers differently. And whereas the centurion servants got healing, there's no guarantee we get healing. So what do we get? if we put our trust in Jesus and his word. Well, Jesus gives us the promise that applies to all of us and it comes in another part of the book of Matthew. Jesus in chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find ah, rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These are my three boys, Toby, Cooper, and Jonty. This was taken earlier this year, first day of school. They're riding their bikes to school. And my wife and I, we promised this wouldn't happen, but it's happened. We said it wouldn't happen, but it's happened. We tried everything we could to not make it happen but it's happened. We have fallen what's called the parent trap. And this is how the parent trap goes. Monday night is swimming lessons. Tuesday night is karate. Wednesday night is football training. Thursday is clarinet lessons. Friday is band. Saturday is Saturday sports. We are maxed out. We cannot do any more for our children. And even then, some will say, they're not doing Chinese. <laughs> They've got to do Chinese. What are you doing? If you don't do Chinese, they will fall behind. If you don't do Chinese, the two parts of the brain won't talk to each other. And now they'll be stupid. They'll be dumb. They'll fall behind. Someone else will say, they need to do piano. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, the clarinet is not a real instrument. The clarinet is just one clef. The piano is two clefs. You want to play a real instrument, you want to set yourself up for life, you need to play the piano, two hands, two clefs. That teaches the two parts of the brain to talk to each other. And I thought, wow, we are maxed out. We're doing everything we can. Even then we don't feel like we're doing enough. And we feel like our kids are being hurt by our bad parenting and they're falling behind. How did this happen? It happened because of this. In the West, we have this unchallenged truth. We have this unchallenged maxim. maxim. We have this unchallenged axiom and it goes like this. See if you complete the sentence. This is what we say in the West. It's the unchallenged truth. I want my children to be happy. Well done. Well done. I love it. It's just one voice. I want my children to be happy. Whenever I do this in my Chinese church, I go, I think it's successful. <laughs> I want my children to be successful, a doctor, a lawyer. I go, no, it's 
happy. Really? I did not know that yet. Trust me, it's happy. You want your children to be happy. Oh, I did not know that yet. That's the unchallenged truth in the West right now. And I love how, because it's sort of a mixed ethnic audience. Everyone wasn't quite sure. Okay, I want my children to be happy. That's why we do what we do. All right, not successful, not doctor, not lawyer. Happy. All right. But here's the great cruel irony of life. By wanting our children to be happy, which is an unachievable goal, we've just made ourselves tired, stressed and miserable. This is Jennifer Senior, New York Times bestseller, All Joy and No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenthood. And she says part of the reason why we are where we are right now is we're chasing happiness for our children, but happiness in the cruel irony of life is an unachievable goal. By looking for it, you're guaranteed not to find it, but because we kept looking for it for our children, we made them tired, stressed and miserable. And we made ourselves tired, stressed and miserable. And then you go, hang on, if it's true for children, it must also be true for adults. If I'm trying everything I can to make myself happy, maybe that's why I'm tired, stressed and miserable as well. Because an interesting thing has happened in the West. We have told ourselves this story in the West. We must reject all forms of authority. We must reject what our parents tell us to do. We must reject what the church tells us to do. We must reject what anyone, anyone tells us to do. And then only I can be my own authority. I've got to keep it real, be authentic, and I need to be true to myself. That's a new unchallenged axiom of the West, right? I need to be true to myself. But in one of those cruel ironies of life, now that we're our own forms of authority, we are our own worst bosses. We're horrible people to work for. And so now we work hard to pay off the house, but we're never home to enjoy the house. We work hard for our children's future, but we're never home for our children. We work hard to pay off the overseas holiday, but if we didn't work so hard, we wouldn't need an overseas holiday. We're working ourselves around and around in a circle. We're our own worst bosses. Just last year in the USA, they did this um, opinion poll and they, they're labelling this generation now. They found out the majority of us in the West, we are what they call the exhausted majority. We're just trying to get through each day. We're just trying to survive. We are the exhausted majority. As I said yesterday, if you could, be, if you could choose to be born any time in Western civilization, it would be now, wouldn't it? Right now in the 21st century because we've cured smallpox. We've had no major world wars for a long time. We've got free internet in McDonald's. We're living longer than we've ever lived before, but we're more stressed, tired and miserable than ever before. It's not working. Instead, Jesus says, hey, come to me. Work for me. Make me the authority. Make me the boss in your life. And that's why in the Bible, in Colossians, it says, in everything we do, work for, work for it as if for Jesus. So even if we're self-employed or we have a boss telling us what to do, Jesus is the boss who tells us what to do. Why, why come to Jesus? Jesus says, I will give you rest. Because whatever identity 
purpose or meaning you're looking for, you will find in me. So don't invest into your family and work to find your identity, purpose or meaning because you will break them and they will break you. Come to me and I will give you the rest that you're looking for. So what would Jesus say to the one stuck in the middle, stuck in the corporate ladder, the middle manager always being told what to do? Number one, reject traditional sources of authority. Number two, make Jesus our new source of authority. Well, why would I want to do that? Because he's the best guy you could work for. We find rest in him in a way we don't find from working for anyone else. Earlier this year, my boys finally discovered Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid, and they watched this. And as you know, in the original Karate Kid, the Karate Kid is training for a karate tournament at the end of the year, and he's being trained by Mr. Miyagi. And Mr. Miyagi is going to train him to win the karate tournament. But... It doesn't go so well because for a long time, Mr. Miyagi gets the Karate Kid to do these seemingly small, insignificant things like, you know, paint the fence, wax the car, paint the fence, wax the car. But you know and I know that this is all part of a bigger plan from Mr. Miyagi where in the final karate tournament, the Karate Kid wins because, whoa, 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 whoa. These were the secret karate moves whoo, 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 that won in the karate tournament. It seems small, instantly in time, but whoo, whoo, whoo. there was a wisdom, a plan, a purpose in what was happening. Same when we go to work. I work one day a week as a surgical assistant. I hold the leg for the surgeon as he operates on it. Move it a little bit up, move it a little bit down, a bit to the left bit to the right. Okay, that is my job and I get paid per case. And that means when they ring me up and say, hey, we've got five cases on today. I go, yes, ka-ching, 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 ka-ching. But when they say we've only got one case, I think, one case, ka-ching. That's not even going to pay for the petrol for me going out there. So one day I'm in gridlock traffic in Sydney, driving out for one case. I think, woe is me. This is my life. In traffic, I'm going to hold a leg and it's not even going to pay for the petrol. And I thought, hang on, what am I talking about? Jesus is my boss. I am doing this for Jesus. Somehow this part of God's plan to bring his love, his mercy, his justice on this planet. This isn't just a leg. This belongs to a human being, a person, an uncle, a nephew, a cousin, a father. I'm bringing value into this person's life. Healing. Maybe they can enjoy leisure, sports and go back to work and bring value you know, to their family and friends. This is my way of bringing God's love mercy and justice on this planet. So what would Jesus say to us who are always being told what to do? Do it for Jesus because he's the best boss to work for. With him we find rest because he gives us all the identity, purpose and meaning that we're looking for and somehow we're part of his bigger plan to bring his love, mercy and justice on this planet. All right, question time. Uh, but during the break, someone asked me a question, so I'll kick off with this question and then we can open up to you guys for the next few questions. I got asked a few questions in the break, so I'll, I'll see if I can answer them in one go. But the questions were related to parenting and in this culture of business, 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 where not only are just churches conflating holiness with business, business with holiness, but also in parenting, work life. To be a good parent, we feel like we have to be busy 
And we just illustrated that with that. The parents show went Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Wow. I feel like I'm not even then I'm not doing enough. I'm not busy enough for my children. So how do we balance this? What's a, a, a good way of coming to parenting with this? All right, several things. Um, number one, Jennifer Senior herself in in her book, All Joy But No Fun, and it's not a Christian book, but there's so much good wisdom in there. She says, I want my children to be, and it's not happy, and it's not successful, I want my children to be of good character. I want them to be mature, independent, of good character. And then as a Christian, I would say, okay, what is my goal as a parent? See, the whole problem with a parent is this kid ends up in your hands. I still remember that. So, so I drive my wife to the hospital. She's about to give birth to our first child. And I think, wow, childbirth has changed so much in decades. When my wife gave birth, no, no. So when I was born, they made the woman go in and they made the man wait outside. Now they make the man go in, even if you don't want to. Like they drag you in there, kicking and screaming, so I'm in there. But I, I, I knew, the man can't do anything, all right? So I brought books and magazines and <laughs> an iPod. Because whatever you do, just makes her angry. All right, guys, just remember that. Because you, you touch her, can I get you a drink? She's like, get off me! So I said, okay, I'll be in this corner. Just call me when you need me. But, and, and then suddenly, boom, this baby is born, they hand it into your arms, and oh, what have we done? You know, there's no instruction booklet. And that's the problem. We don't know what we're doing. Just surviving a feed cycle at a time, a school year at a time. And I ran to this parenting seminar and they said, what is your end goal? At 18, what do you want your child to be? And none of us have thought of this before. What is our KPI? What is our metric? What is our vision? Where do we, our mission statement as parents? We thought, I don't know. At 18, you want your child to be independent, mature, of godly character. And so my wife and I often we up think, way up think, you know, it'd be good if our kids played the piano. Will it really help them to be independent, mature, of godly character? It may, it may not. So it's not necessary. So we can cross it off. So we know what our goal is. It's not to get ahead. The whole problem with trying to get ahead is you always still feel like you're not doing enough. And so that, that's how we balance a work life thing. Like, okay, what is our end game? Independent, mature of godly character. So we do everything we can to raise them to be that when they're 18. The second thing is, the Bible has a principle of Sabbath. Sabbath is rest, but it's not just rest. It's actually trusting that God will continue to provide. Uh, it's a horrible feeling. You think about it, you're harvesting, harvesting. Suddenly one, there's one day we think, oh, we're not going to harvest and we're just going to watch the crops go off. That is us trusting God. You provided and you continue to provide. You gave me enough to live on yesterday, you're going to give me enough to live on tomorrow. That's why when they gather manna, they can only gather enough for today. You weren't meant to store and, uh, and, you, and you're meant to rest. So Sabbath means I will trust God to provide. So sometimes as a doctor, they ring me and say, hey, you know, can you do this extra case? And I thought, whoa, that would really help pay for the bills. But I did promise a day of rest with my family. I need to take the day of rest and trust that God will provide. He provided for me yesterday, he'll provide again tomorrow. It's the same with children then. You know, someone says, hey, this is an amazing thing. Your kids are going to learn, you know, like, there'll be a mind quest, whatever, whatever. They'll learn programming, coding, sculpture, painting, and it's everything you need to make your kids get ahead. And I thought, well, you know, it's sort of the weekend. It'd be good if we had some 
Friday family fun time and we Sabbathed together. So I think Sabbath, learning to trust God to provide, rest, enjoy the presence, because that was a point of Sabbath as well. And also, what is our end goal? Independent, mature, a godly character. So maybe they don't need the violin lessons. They don't need the Spanish. Yes, it will help them get ahead, but that's not what is only important in life. All right, next question. Yes. Get on your Marco. Uh, so we're thinking about what would Jesus say. A really different example is in John's Gospel where he's talking to the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. So with Zacchaeus he said, this one too is a son of Abraham. To the Pharisees he said, you think you're sons of Abraham. You guys are sons of Satan. Mm. So Jesus, he went really hard and went really offensive. Is that something unique and distinct that Jesus did for us and we don't need to have any part of that? We don't need to model what he did? Or is there a place for offensive Christianity? I mean, I know it, it makes it almost sounds like it's answering itself. Yeah, so it's all how, how does Jesus relate to the world in general? And in my book, there's a W spectrum, W1, W2, W3, W4, where we see examples of Jesus and the apostles, how they relate with the world. So at this extreme, W1 is very oppositional, adversarial. Here it's much more um, attractional and, and, and wooing and fulfilling. And so examples of Jesus being very oppositional and adversarial would be him in a temple with a whip, you know, that's quite oppositional, quite adversarial. Or Jesus saying to the rich young man, you know, you sell everything you have and follow me. So that's quite oppositional. It's hard to palate. Down this end, W3, W4 is like Jesus to the woman of the world. Hey, it's great you want water. You know, you want water. I want water. Can I have some water? But, you know, you're going to stay thirsty. Come a bit further and I'll give you living water. So that's much more working with what you have, and then W4 will be the Apostle Paul in Athens. You've got idols. Oh, how about that? So W1 will be, I'm going to come through with a whip and knock the idols over, but W4 is, I'll, I'll work with it. Let me work with your idols. Okay, not what I would do. You've only broken commandments one and two of the Ten Commandments, which therefore means you've broken all the commandments, but I can see you're very religious. And you have one to an unknown God. Let me tell you the name of that God. So it's actually saying, come a bit further, all right? These ones are like, okay, you're coming here, come further. These ones are, okay, you're wrong, oppositional. So there's a place for all four, I think, approaches. But by and large, we find with Jesus and the apostles, they seem to come in quite oppositional, quite adversarial, quite in your face, you're wrong. And we see this with the prophets in the Old Testament as well, to their own people, to the church people, to the religious people, to the God-fearers, the God-worshippers who should have known better they had the scriptures. Whereas over here, it's to the unchurched, the people without the scriptures who didn't know better. So if we were to use that model, God would be most oppositional to us, the people of God, who should have known better, who are already worshipping in, you know, in the house of God. And so the crime here isn't you've broken a law, the crime here is self-righteousness and, and, judge, and, and looking down on everyone else. So it's the, the paradigm is that Pharisee 
who was confident in his own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Thank God I'm not like other people. Look at me. And he actually hasn't broken any commandments there. But that's where God is quite oppositional. So I think, yes, there's a time for oppositional adversarial, but at the same time, notice the nuance in the Bible where this seems to be those, to those people, church with the Bible, who should have known better. Thanks. Marco, great cardio. Good cardio. It's too much. It's too much for me. <laughs> Keeping you fit. Um, of course, I've got a question. I really liked what you said just then um, because my question has to do with your second point, which is trusting in Jesus as your new source of authority and power. And I think that, in Australia at least, we've been very spoilt as Christians. We've been allowed to conflate the public sphere with those tribes. So we've got church schools operating in the public sphere, serving public people. Um, and I think that sometimes we go a bit kind of the tail before the dog, cut before the horse, and we think that we can tell other people what's best for them outside of the context of a relationship with God. So we tell them and we want to enshrine in laws Christian ways of living, like no same-sex marriage, no abortion, but we've completely skipped over everything else that makes those endpoints make any sense. I mean, that's my personal view. I feel that that is also something that Jesus models in the Bible. And I was just curious, because obviously you've done a lot more thinking and study on this topic, what your view was as well. Sure. So once again, it's great to go back to those three spaces. So hopefully you remember there's a private space, privacy in my own home. There's the tribal space, freedom to form assemblies with people who have the same practices and beliefs. So there's actually nothing wrong with tribes. We actually need tribes. Social identity theory, again, says it's security, economy, uh, effort, pooling of resources. And then there's the public sphere where we are one and we are many. So if we understand those three spheres, and I explained them earlier, hopefully you can remember, the other thing is how do we understand morality in each of the three spheres? So in the private sphere, we are of single morals. So if I have an AFL privacy in my own home, we have single morals. So on Friday night, you're going to put the AFL on and you are wrong if you put the soccer on. All right, so single morals. We will expel you, like go to the house down the road if you want to watch soccer. All right, but we're watching AFL here. In this one, uh, the assembly one, again, we have single morals. So if we sign up for an AFL club, we will play AFL. That is our moral. We play the codes, the rules of AFL. And if you want to play soccer, fine, but there's another club down there with soccer morals, soccer rules, a soccer ball. But here in the public space, we need to share, we need what's called moral pluralism, one of many morals. So there'll be different football codes, different football ethics. And the Bible has the same thing. So Paul in Corinthians, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 5, maybe 6, I always get 5 and 6 mixed up. He writes to the Corinthians church about sex and morality and he says... I hear there's a brother, a Christian in your church who sleeps with his mother and you're proud of it. In fact, you're bragging, you're virtue signalling, you're tweeting it. Look at us, look at us, look, look at us, look how inclusive we are. We even welcome a Christian brother who sleeps with his mother and Paul says you can't do that, that's immoral. So in this space, the, the church space, the assembly of the people of God's space, he, Paul says you need to cast out that, that brother. 
like he's free to speak, sleep with his mother, but he needs to do it in some other community. He can't do it in your church. Excommunicate the immoral brother, but out of love and relationship, hoping to restore him that one day he will come back. So you do it out of love, grace and forgiveness. And then he anticipates the next question, can we hang around with other immoral people who might also be sleeping with their mothers? And Paul goes, of course you can. You can associate with any people of any morals, otherwise you would have to leave the world. So in the public space, we're free to mix with people of all forms of religions and moralities, people that we would not agree with. So it's understanding how these three spaces work. So Jesus then navigates these three spaces, saying that privacy is his own home. Okay, I'm the son of God. All right. Then, then he forms a group of followers, 12 apostles, who also believe he's the son of God. Um, but in this public space, he's hanging around with people of all different beliefs and traditions, many of whom don't believe he's the son of God. And the Bible is always saying he's eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And he's doing so much of it. He's criticised for it. So there's a verse saying, they say you're a glutton and a drunkard because you're doing too much eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. And then people complain to Jesus and his disciples, how come you and your master, you're always eating with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, because, you know, the, the, it's not the healthy who go to a doctor, it's the sick who go to a doctor. I've come not to, 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 not to seek and save, you know, the, the save, but I've come to seek and save the lost. So what's happening here is the religious authorities are conflating these two spheres. They're thinking by hanging around tax collectors and sinners, Jesus is approving of them as if they're on the inside. But actually, no, he's in the public space mixing with people with different beliefs, practices and moralities. So that's the example that we get from Jesus, that, that he forms his own inner tribe, but he's still free to mix with people with different beliefs. And he does so much of it, he's criticised for it. So this gets really tricky now. So let me show you how this gets really tricky because everyone has tr- trouble keeping these three spheres separate and they conflate them. And interestingly enough, if you look at Daniel in Babylon... It's these three spheres that get challenged. So when they're asked to learn from Babylonian teachers and authorities, uh, that's confronting their people of God identity. When they're asked to bow before the statue in public, that, that's robbing their freedom of conscience in the public space. And then when Daniel's told he can't pray in private, well now he's lost his private space for freedom of conscience. So we need all these three spaces. Okay, so when a Christian school says we only want to employ teachers who have the same Christian faith as our vision, are they doing it as a, a public school or, or this space here, like a, a, a freedom of assembly space? And most Christian schools say, yes, we're doing it here. That's why we can say we want teachers of the same faith and practices as our ethos. But interestingly enough, the students don't have to. So all that kerfuffle in the media... Well, was, uh, was, just, was just bad reporting because no student is expected to be a Christian or have the same views on sex and morality as the Christian school does. When a bank says, today's going to be purple shirt day and we want all our employees to wear purple shirts on purple shirt day, where are they doing that from? Are they doing it from a private space, freedom of assembly space, or are they doing it in the public space? That's where it gets really tricky. You sort of think, when I sign up for a bank, I thought I was signing up in this space, but it sounds like it has to be this space. Like, cause for you to force me to wear a purple shirt means I'm not over here. I'm here now. But most banks will say, no, no, we're here. We're here. But no, but the way you're behaving and making me wear a purple shirt feels like 
I'm, I'm over here. And, and the Israel Folau tweet is another example of that. When he sends a tweet, is he sending in the privacy of his own home because he should be allowed to tweet what he wants in the privacy of his own home? Is he doing it in the public space because he should be allowed to tweet what he wants in the public space? But if he's tweeting at Unemployment of Rugby Australia who've got their own ethos, then maybe he can't send that tweet out. So it's all about debating where that... And that's what the court case we were trying to work out. Was he doing it in this space or that space? And this space is a tricky one because everyone makes mistakes here because on the one hand, Christians think we can coerce people into Christian belief in the public space, but we can't and we shouldn't. We're meant to be one of many voices who persuade. But the secular worldview makes the same mistake because they say you need to leave your faith at the door when you come into the public space. But as Eddie Wu, the Wu-Tube will say, my faith is personal but not private. My faith is personal and always meant to be public and you can't ask me to stop being a Christian in the public space because you can't ask me to stop being Asian in the public space. That is who I am and my Christian faith is who I am. So people like, um, you know, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, they are who they are because of their private faith in the public. And saying I've got to leave my faith behind is like when I went to America and when you go to America, every American goes, oh, I love your Aussie accent. And they go, do I have an accent to you? They think, oh, they can't hear their own accent. They think they're neutral. And I had this guy in California say the reason they make, they make movies out of California is because no one's going to hear an accent. There is no California accent. It's neutral and normative. And so when a secular person says you need to be of the secular worldview in the public space, you think, no, I think that's not neutral. You're imposing your accent, your cultural accent on me. So instead we need to be one and many in this. Again, unity with diversity rather than uniformity in the public space. But in this space we can ask for you know, uniformity, uh, unite around common faiths and practices and beliefs. All right, we're going to wrap it up there. Um, we'll have the band. No, that's awesome. It's a very um, nuanced question. Uh, yeah, please welcome Paul and stand up and, and join as he sing, as we sing. <laughs>